Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 100 of the new Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and we have made it 100 episode in the books. Who knows how many more to go? We started this podcast during the pandemic way back in 2020. Now here we are, early 2023, and we've made it to the century mark. Very excited for today's episode, and I owe it all to you guys. I have to thank you right from the jump. Many of you hopped on with us really from the start of this podcast. We were thrilled with the audience that we had right from the get-go. We've had others who have joined on along the way. We've really had a remarkably consistent audience for this podcast, for all 100 episodes, and it keeps growing. Last week, even though it was kind of a short episode, it was just reaction to that Vladimir Tarasenko trade, we had a couple days where we were in the top 10 most listened to hockey podcasts in the country. So that was pretty cool. That's happened a handful of times, but overall, it's been such an enjoyable experience for me. It's given me a different forum to talk directly to you guys, as opposed to all the writing and reporting and and tweeting and and the other stuff that comes with the job. But this, I feel like, is a really personal connection between me and the listeners. I love it. I hope you guys love it as well. And we're really, really thrilled to have made it this far. Now, to help us celebrate, we're going to have a kind of unique guest set up for today. The thought occurred to me that the two people, besides my family, it's close, I would say, between them and my family, that I spend the most time with during hockey season are Molly Walker of the New York Post and Colin Stevenson of Newsday. Now, obviously, we're competitors, we're competing for stories, and we're obviously in a competitive environment in that sense. But The three of us have become really close. We're constantly going out to dinner. We're constantly traveling together. We're constantly laughing together. I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of that. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to pull back the curtain a little bit and give you guys a glimpse into our relationships and what kind of stuff we're doing on the road. I'm sure we'll talk about the locker room and our experiences covering the team. So that will be, I think, a very interesting conversation. We haven't recorded it yet, although Colin is texting me right now. I think he's wondering when it's going to start. So I'll have to move along a little quickly so I don't keep them waiting for too long. But yeah, it'll be fun, I think. And those two in particular, obviously there are other people on the beat as well that we spend a fair amount of time with. But the three of us are together quite a bit. We're on the road quite a bit. And I think it'll come through that that we've had some pretty funny experiences together. And again, I hope we'll be able to shine some light into what it's like covering the team, the personalities in the locker room, the different things that we go through to try to do this job to the best of our ability and all of that. So we'll get to that shortly, but let's start 
by doing what we do every week, and that's talking some NYR. I just arrived in Edmonton, checked into my hotel about 15 minutes ago. The Rangers last night on Wednesday played the Vancouver Canucks. Vancouver, by the way, what a beautiful city. Every time I've been there, it, it just wows me. It's, it's cold this time of year. I did get a chance to go there in the summer back in 2019. That was actually the first trip I ever took on this beat. That was for the draft that year. Of course, that's when the Rangers took Capo Caco at number two overall. In the summer, that place is absolutely gorgeous. It's right on the water. The seafood is as fresh as you could be. The sushi that we had on Tuesday night this week, I think was the best sushi I've ever had. Great food scene there, really rich culture, a lot of diversity, a lot of Asian culture there. So you can find a lot of good Asian food in Vancouver. And then you also have these big, beautiful frosted tipped mountains in the background beyond the water. So it's as scenic as it gets. It's definitely one of my favorite cities in the NHL, definitely one of my favorite Canadian cities. And it was great to get a chance to spend three nights there because the Rangers went early and practiced on Monday and Tuesday before their game on Wednesday. So they beat the Canucks by a score of 5-4. to four. They keep this winning streak going. It's six in a row now. There was kind of a positive and negative feeling to come out of this game. Oh, overwhelmingly, it's positive around this team right now because the wins keep stacking up. And the biggest thing right now is this offense is really, really clicking. We've talked in the past, whether it was earlier this season, even last season, five-on-five scoring, and more recently, especially this year, the power play struggling. Those were concerns for this team. But right now, they are on a hot streak as far as the scoring goes. They posted, I said 5-4, it's actually 6-4. They posted six goals in Vancouver on Wednesday night. They've now scored four goals or more in six consecutive games, all wins. And that's the most that they've done that, at least the most games in a row that they've done that for since 2006. So they're rolling right now. And right at the top of that is their two most dynamic offensive players, Artemi Panarin and Mika Zibanejad. Those guys have really been leading the charge. It's it's kind of amazing with Panarin because he's expressed some disappointment about his goal scoring this season. Now, he says this, everybody around the league knows it. His bread and butter is his passing. Obviously, he leads the team in assists, and he makes looks and reads that very few players in the league can make. And and I've written before about his backhanded touch and how he works on all these different passes from different angles in practice, and a lot of times out early before practice on the ice on his own. So you know he has that in his bag of tricks, but I think he wasn't happy with how few goals he had going into the All-Star break. I think he only had 12 at that point. Well, all of a sudden, in a span of basically two-plus periods, the first period being Saturday night in Carolina, where he scored from the end of that second period through the end of the game, so a little over 20 minutes, scored four goals in that win over Carolina, And then he carries that into the game in Vancouver and adds two more goals there. And they're coming in all different fashions. The first goal in Vancouver was a one-timer, which was set up by Jimmy Vesey, who, oh, by the way, to me has been one of the most underrated, valuable players for the Rangers during this recent winning streak. He makes plays every night. 
his attention to the finer details, his willingness to do the dirty work, but then also having the skill to make plays when the plays are there to be made. He's fit in really well in these last couple games on that line with Panarin. I think he's definitely giving the Rangers a lot to think about right now. But Panarin scores six goals over the course of those two games, the win in Carolina and the win in Vancouver. And meanwhile, Mika Zibanejad has scored in five straight games. He's up to 29 goals this season. He's about to reach the 30-goal marker, I believe, for the third time in his career. He's also red hot right now. And when those two are going at the pace that they're going at right now, it just feels like everything else in the lineup falls into place. They're still waiting for Vladimir Tarasenko to click. He scored a goal in that opening night game, or I shouldn't say opening night, in his first game with the Rangers last week, right after the trade on his very second shift. Panarin sets him up, and Tarasenko gets the finish as he's crashing the net in that win on Thursday or Friday. I'm losing track of my days now. And the Garden absolutely erupted. They were chanting his name. It was a really cool atmosphere at MSG right before the Rangers left for this road trip. So he had a great start to his Rangers career. It's been a little quiet since then. He did have an assist in Vancouver. Hasn't had all that many shots on goals. I think he's still kind of trying to find his way and learn his new teammates and and, and figure out his spots to be aggressive with his shot, which is, we know, the primary reason that the Rangers acquired him. The Rangers are also trying to figure out how the lines work best right now. Everybody thought Tarasenko was coming over to play with Artemi Panarin, not only because they're such close friends, but also because Tarasenko's a shooter, Panarin's a passer. It just seems to make sense. But right now, at least offensively, it's working the way that they have it. And that's with Kreider, Zabanajad, and Tarasenko on the top line, and Panarin, Trocek, and VC on the second line. And quite frankly, These last two games, the Rangers' best line, I think by far, has been that Panarin-Trocek-Visi line. It kind of makes you think a little bit because we had gone through this long period where it just felt like things weren't working with Panarin and Trocek. Now, all of a sudden, Gallant decided to put them back together late in the second period of that game in Carolina, and something clicked. I don't know what it was. I don't know if anybody can really put their finger on it, but... All of a sudden, Panarin started pouring goals in. All of a sudden, that line started really driving play. And as I mentioned, I think VZ deserves a decent amount of credit in that. I think this guy has really been a tremendous find for the Rangers to bring him back on a PTO. And now you look at what they're getting out of him. I do think, you know, people are still skeptical about whether he should be in the top nine. I know a lot of people are still tweeting at me saying he really should be in the fourth line to optimize your lineup. But I, I don't know. Panarin seems to benefit from having a guy who, A, is good defensively, and VC is in the conversation for best defensive forward on the team this year. I think it's either him or Mika. And B, is willing to do the dirty work, who's going to do the puck retrieval, who's going to create turnovers. I mean, you look at a couple of those goals in Carolina, two of them all started because VC was sort of stealth and intercepted a pass from one of the Hurricanes defensemen who didn't see him in the passing lane and then makes a quick decision with the puck and sets up the Rangers off the rush. 
So VC makes these headsy plays. And I think having a guy like that with Panarin, who you know likes to take some risks, VC kind of covers up some of that risk and is a safer player. But he also has the skill to make plays when they're presented to him. He reminds me a little bit of what they were getting when Jesper Faust was on that line with Panarin. There's a couple differences. First off, VC is not as strong of a skater. He's not as fast as Jesper Faust is. But VC has more offense in the tank. And I think that that combination right now seems to be clicking with Panarin. And, and Trocek is working right there as well. So I think they're going to let this ride for a little bit. I do think it's going to be a period of experimentation. And I wrote about this in my mailbag a little bit this week. We, we've criticized and questioned the frequent line changes really all season with Gerard Gallant. But I think it's almost reached this point. This is the sense I'm getting right now where the players kind of expect it and it's not so much a shock to the system or a disappointment or a source of frustration when it happens. They are so used to playing with different guys now that they kind of roll with the punches and take it in stride. And now that you're trying to work Tarasenko into the mix, it almost makes sense in these next few weeks. Obviously, you'd like to settle on lines at some point. But in these next couple weeks, I don't think it's the craziest thing for them to continue to tweak and try to make sure that you have everything just right, just the way that you want it to be before the playoffs. So that is something I would expect. But right now, it's been, I guess we could say, four or so periods where the lines have pretty much been the same. And the Rangers, beyond what they're getting from Panarin and Zibanejad, who have obviously been the stars, and we touched on VC a little bit, they're getting contributions from a lot of different guys offensively, too. Chris Kreider had a goal in Vancouver. He passes Mark Messier on the franchise's all-time goal-scoring list, which is a pretty impressive accomplishment. The kids cooled off a little bit in Vancouver. I think prior to that game, if I'm not mistaken, at least one of them had scored a goal in eight straight games. Now, their line was on for one goal against the Canucks, but the three of them, none of them had a goal in that game. So they cooled off a little bit. I didn't think that was their best game, but overall they've been really, really good for the Rangers in the last few weeks. And a lot of the defensemen stepped up. I think five of the six defensemen had points in Vancouver as well. So offensively, you're liking what you're seeing right now. On the other end of the spectrum, the negative that was coming out of that game in Vancouver is that they're they're definitely giving up more than they'd like right now. I thought there were moments where the defense was a little too loose. It does seem like they're falling into this track meet style of play a little bit more in these last handful of games. Maybe that's because Tarasenko came over. Maybe that's because they're trying to open up the offense and you're just going to live with some of those situations where you turn the puck over and it creates a chance for the other team going the other way. That's probably all part of it. But the other thing, and probably the bigger thing and bigger concern at the moment, although I, you know, I don't know how much of a long-term concern it is, but it's definitely something that's a relevant topic right now, is Igor Shosturkin. And the fact that he has not been his sharpest in his last few starts. I've talked about this before. I like the fact that they're trying to rest him. They're trying to keep him healthy and fresh for the stretch run and for especially the playoffs. And Yaro Halak has been awesome. He's won seven starts in a row. He's earning more playing time. So there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense to back off on how much you're playing Igor 
but it does seem to be having a negative impact on his play. He's only had three starts since January 25th. Part of that was because of the All-Star break. Part of that was because of Halak. But he's only had three starts in the last, what's that, like almost three weeks? So in those three starts, he's won all three. But his save percentage is only 880. That is way below what we come to expect from Igor. And you look at Wednesday, there were some goals in there that were just uncharacteristic for him. You know, I know JT Miller is a really good offensive player, and it was a power play goal that he scored in that game, but it didn't look like Igor was screened. It looked like he had a clean look at that one-timer. I was talking to somebody about this after the game. That's not a save that you necessarily are going to crush him about not making, but it's a save that you kind of expect him to make. And then late in the game, where the Canucks score to make it 5-4 to four and start making the Rangers sweat a little bit, you do see... Igor give up a goal on a wrist shot from the high slot where, again, I don't think he was really screened. Mikola was in front of the guy, but he was nowhere close to Igor. I think Igor maybe, probably saw the puck pretty well, and it still gets by him. So it's not what you come to expect from him. You're not going to crush the guy because of how good he's largely been in his whole Rangers career. And obviously, I think there is something to him setting such a high standard last year that Now, when there's any blip on the radar, everybody's like, wow, this this is not what we're used to seeing. So I have confidence that he will straighten it out. And I do think that the Rangers might prioritize trying to get him back in a rhythm a little bit more in the next few weeks. I'm curious to see what they do this weekend because they have back-to-back games in Edmonton on Friday and in Calgary on Saturday. Chances are he's only going to start one of those two games. They also then fly home on Sunday, and they've got a game at home on Monday, I think, against Winnipeg. So you assume he's going to start that one as well. The question is, between Edmonton and Calgary, which game do you pick? Part of me is like, you know, Halak is kind of playing better right now. Igor might be hurting it from a confidence standpoint a little bit right now. Maybe you don't want to throw him to the Wolves against a potent team like Edmonton, and you save him for Calgary. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you're thinking about, okay, well, if he starts Saturday and then they're basically having this long flight coming home late Saturday night into Sunday and he's not sleeping very well and he's adjusting to time zones again and then you expect him to go out there again the very next day on Monday and play, that's probably not putting him in the best position to succeed either. So my hunch is that you probably will see him against Edmonton. And if he's not sharp against the Oilers, we know what kind of firepower they have. So very curious to see if he has a bounce back performance if he does play in that one. We'll see how it, how it plays out. I do think Halak obviously will get one of those two starts. But that is one of the things, the very few things that maybe isn't going according to plan for the Rangers right now. Overall, six wins in a row, as I mentioned. 21 of their last 28. They're absolutely rolling, rolling, rolling. One of the best teams in the NHL in the last few months looking like a legitimate Stanley Cup contender, especially now that they've made their big splash. And there might be more to come before the trade deadline on March 3rd. We're going to get into all that on the other end of our interviews. But I think now is the time. See my phone lighting up. Don't want to keep Colin and Molly waiting any longer. So without further ado, let's get to this conversation and see where it goes. Because I didn't prepare anything for this, so it could get weird. 
three, two, one. <laughs> Stop laughing, Molly. Mo- Molly's laughing before we even start. I wasn't, you know, I was going to give you guys a nice intro, but now I guess we're just going right into it. She just blew it up on you. This I'm is- sorry. It was so like official and, and we've never done this before. So I guess seeing it in that kind of light was kind of funny. I'm very <laughs> official, Molly. I could see. I could see. Yeah. Right, go ahead. Go, yeah. go for your intro. Uh, well, this is Molly Walker from the New York Post and Colin Stevenson from Newsday. You guys probably know them. I talked about them a little bit at the top of the podcast, so I won't I won't waste time saying anything nice about them right now. But as I mentioned earlier, I, I would say it's pretty much neck and neck with who I see more during hockey season, my family or you two. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of appropriate to have you guys on today and just see where the conversation goes. I don't know where we were going to hear a lot of echoing from Colin because he's in a massive hotel suite <laughs> because he gets upgraded all the time. I guess this there are. Why, benefits. This is why I stay at this hotel when I come to Edmonton. Yeah, there are benefits to being the oldest in the group and having the most Marriott points because he always gets upgraded. That's right. And that's why I keep trying to tell you, you got to get the points, man. Get the points. Yeah, I, yeah. I stayed in that exact same suite the last time I was here. I don't know why I didn't get upgraded this time. I guess because they <laughs> I guess because they took a took favor for you. But uh, yeah, this hotel is like the largest rooms that I've ever seen. It's just like way too much space for one single human being. It's like three different rooms. It's like a sitting room, the bathroom, yeah. and then the bedroom. But the bedroom is like abnormally large as well. Like so much space on either side of the bed. The ceiling is really high. Like I just remember being like, Jesus, who needs all this space? But I'm not complaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Not that we spend much time in the hotel rooms anyway, but. All right. So it, I think one of the funny things about the three of us, because obviously we spend a lot of time together on the road. I came on the beat in 2019. Molly, you started in 2020, right? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, 2019, 20 season. Uh huh. Uh huh. I started coming around a little bit. And Colin was the season before, but Colin has obviously a lot more experience. We won't go into who's, you know, exactly what age here. <laughs> but w- one of the things that I think I, I, we've joked about that I said before is you can tell the generational gap between the three of us because if you look at Colin when he shows up at a game, Colin's got his old school score sheet. He's writing everything down. He's got all the notes. They print out, you know, notes and stats on every team. And Colin has to take every sheet. Me, I'm kind of in between. I I have been a little more into carrying my notebook. So I jot down quick notes. I like to take the one sheet that has the final stat line. uh, But that's about it for me. And then Molly does everything electronically. It's, it's all on her phone. <laughs> Nothing. And Larry always grabs me the final score sheet and hands it to me. And I never look at it once. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> it's, it's all on the computer, guys. It's right in front of you. You don't need to be killing all these trees. Well, Colin's <laughs> killing the most trees for sure. But you know. Man, I know it's on the computer, but it just it it's faster to look it up on paper. Is it, though? Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that either. I think that's a fallacy. Like, then I got like 20 tabs on my thing, and it's just, no, I, I, no. And then that's I gotta, the beauty of it, though. No. It's no. just one click away. You know, you people, you, 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 you guys don't have any appreciation of what we went through. You know, walking to games in the snow both ways uphill, you know, it was crazy. I think about, <laughs> I think about the travel 
early on. I mean, I'm somebody that I need to look at my boarding pass on my phone at least 50 times before I walk on the plane. (laughs) And just the thought of not having it, having to go check into the airport, get the physical printed ticket, which we do have to do occasionally when we go to Canada. It's the only time we ever really have to do printed boarding passes. And even still, sometimes we get away without it. It depends on the place, depends on the flight. But I just think about and some of the stories that Colin has told me from, from what travel was like then just gives me so much anxiety. I just, I don't know how you did it. Just stop. It's not, <laughs> it's not that long ago. Yeah, um, I, yeah, Colin, you're, you're saying you had to walk through the snow. Like what, when you first started covering the league, did cabs not exist? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, like, what are you saying, man? Oh, man. No, actually, you know what? Um, it, it's... Cabs existed, obviously, but Uber was not around. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That was a that was a thing. Um, and uh, you, the other thing is, you know, whatever. It's I can tell you all kinds of stories of the old days and stuff. But <laughs> the thing that that I have a hard time getting over is that you two younguns don't carry cash on you because yeah. is, you <laughs> that's not always true of me. You've been surprised by me a couple times when I've had it on me, but I, I don't carry, like, I don't make it a point that I always have to have it because it's 2023 and most places accept cards. I know, but like, you know, but, you know, getting back to the whole taxi thing, like you needed tax, you needed cash for, uh, for the taxis because they preferred cash and then you needed, you know, and I, I tip people, you guys don't tip anybody. So I guess you don't need cash. So there you go. Well, since I moved into my doorman building, I have cash on me. <laughs> nice, nice, but nice. I think about back to the cab thing. Wouldn't you have to like call and schedule a cab in the morning yes. for your flight? Well, yeah. 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 But, you know, at most you couldn't do it on nobody... your phone, Molly. You couldn't well, do it on your what, phone. What happens when nobody's available? What if there are no cabs available? Is that a thing? Did that ever happen to you? Like, again, no. the anxiety. I can't handle it. <laughs> No, no. In those days, cabs would be lined up at the hotel. Generally, they would, okay. they would all just wait at the cab. Or, all right. So I don't know what just happened. I got kicked out, but these two are still in here, thankfully. So we're 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 gonna pick up where we left off. We were pretty much talking about how Molly likes to do everything on her phone and is scared of <laughs> is scared of human interaction. So Molly, do you have any other comments on that? Listen, it's not being scared. It's just it's just a, a preference, and it's just a little easier. All together. Shut up, Colin. Now, back back to the (laughs) Toronto story. Did we not go to a great sushi place? It was fine. And I picked it. It was right next to my hotel. It was right next to the arena. Found it all by myself. Didn't need to ask anybody for suggestions. But I trust Yelp and all the, you know, online reviews and things like that to help me make my decisions rather than just the opinion of someone working in the front desk in the hotel, someone, which I'm sure who, they have suggestions. Someone working at the front desk whose job it is to be customer service, whose job it is sure. to give you recommendations. And sure, yeah, just, sure. Just, just to give you guys the, the background, we were in Toronto <laughs> and we want we wanted to get sushi, but the pl- Colin and I had a place we've went, been to a few times. They closed at some point during the pandemic and Molly was staying in the hotel closest to the arena. So we said, Molly, we'll put you in charge of finding a sushi place near the arena and oh by the way we could get into a whole other story about how molly did not eat sushi for the first few years we knew her and we finally got her to cave this year and now she likes it so that's great credit to you for that 
<laughs> but we, we were like, hey, just go to the concierge and ask for a sushi place around the hotel. And she said she was going to do it. And then we later found out that it was just a Yelp situation. <laughs> so another here's here's another uh, example. I don't want to just pick on Molly too much, but another. That's OK, keep piling it on. <laughs> keep piling it on. Another We're giving the people an insight yeah. into what it's like in our yeah. relationship, aren't we? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So not not only is this just about like your anxiety, but it's also, it spells out the differences between us. It's arrival time at airports. At the airport, oh, that's gosh. the biggest one. Yep. So if for me, I take pride in this. You ask these guys, it's like a game for me. It is. Especially when I'm going to LaGuardia, I have it down to a science. I, because I have TSA pre-check and I fly through security usually, I am really good at getting there within let's say, you know, a certain amount of time, 15, 20 minutes, half hour before my flight board. So I'm not just messing around in the airport and, you know, killing time. I'd rather have the more time with my family or whatever as I'm doing that day. So I will often arrive at the airport an hour or less before my flight takes off. And five minutes if he can swing it. Yeah. And that makes Molly crazy because Molly <laughs> is there like three hours yeah. early. <laughs> not anymore. Okay. When I first started, yes, I was there three hours early. But actually, the last two times that Colin and I have been on the same flight, Colin has gotten there before me, including today going to Edmonton. I mean, so, granted, I'm like five minutes after him, but like still, <laughs> I'm getting a little bit better, more comfortable. I have clear. So I'm not worried about the security as much anymore. But hey, I mean, Vince missed his flight. Where was it? In Toronto. Yes and, yes. and that was when Pearson was an absolute nightmare. It was snowing the day before. A bunch of flights were canceled. So Pearson was an absolute madhouse. We all of us waited in line for like three hours. My flight ended up being delayed, but I actually was there. The only one of us that was on time that would have made my originally scheduled flight. And yeah. To, to my credit. I made my flight. To, to yeah, my credit, I got to Pearson two hours before because I know that everyone says Pearson's a nightmare and even getting to the airport two hours oh. before I still missed that flight. But luckily they had flights running like every hour and a half. So it kind of worked the time it worked out for me anyway. And I still got home. All right. <laughs> but yeah, that's the one time I've missed. And that was actually one of the earliest I've ever gotten to the airport. It's just because that yeah. airport's so bad. So, oh, so and, bad. and because you and I were at the same hotel and, and you know, you, you had to go with me. So yeah, uh, Colin was like, we're, go we're going me. at this time. Yeah. Even the, yeah. Yeah, you had a. I think you had a slightly later flight than me. You, you were in a different terminal. Your terminal wasn't as backed up as ours that yeah. day. No, maybe. When know. Vince and I have gone together, Vince and I have to compromise. Yeah, we'll meet <laughs> in the middle. The <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a time in Chicago, I think it was, where we were all in the same hotel, which is not always the case. Right. And and I had to be the one in the middle between you two. Like, yeah. you, know, you want to get there way early, <laughs> get there right at the right at the boarding, and I had to figure out what was the the in between time, the happy medium. Okay. So but, I, I I was thinking about this to kind of shift gears a little bit. Every like every week for the show, we take questions from fans, and almost every single week, people want to know about what it's like being in the locker room or what it's like being back in the locker room after the mm -hmm. pandemic when our yeah. access was much more restricted. So since I have you two on, I didn't really think about this before, but the thought kind of just occurred to me, what, you know, do you, what can you guys share about what it's like being in the locker room, how you manage those situations and, and what a difference it's made this season now that we have that access again, after going through a couple seasons where we didn't. Uh, I think that's uh that's it's, it's just so wonderful. I mean, you can actually um, 
talk to guys. Uh, you know, the other day, uh, I think it was Monday, right? So when 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 the, the jury made the trade and brought in these guys Thursday, we all saw them Friday. It was a whirlwind. It was, you know, it was, you know, a, a scrum for both of these guys talking to these guys. And so on Monday, when we were at practice in Vancouver, I decided I saw Tarasenko and I decided to go up and say hello and just kind of introduce myself. Because obviously when there's 20, you know, when there's 10 of us, you know, around them, there's no point in introducing yourself. So I went up, I introduced myself. I said, oh, I just want to say hello. I'm Colin. And then, of course, I automatically whipped out my phone to like start recording. And I figured as long as I'm talking to him, I'll get some sort of an interview. And he was like, I thought you were just coming over to say hello. So I said, you know what? You're right. And so I turned off my phone and uh, or I'm in a recorder anyway. And uh, we just chatted for a few minutes. So that's the kind of thing you get interactions with with guys. And and uh, even yesterday, I thought I was going to have my little magic touch with Macola because um, I went over and I talked to him and I just introduced myself. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm the guy that, you know, I talked to Coach <laughs> Navage. And uh, told you know, the whole story. I heard it from the other side of the locker. Nevich was in a foul mood because he hadn't scored, and I talked to him, and he talked to him, and, and then he scored that game. And so he was laughing because, of course, he knows Buchnevich from St. Louis. He goes, "That's Buch, all right." You know, whatever. We had a nice little conversation and stuff. And then for a while, we thought he had scored, so I thought I was going to be the hero, but then I wasn't. That that's a funny thing. With Colin has convinced himself now. Sometimes it happens, but I, I think it's become more of a story that he tells than like a surefire thing. But Colin tells every player he talks to, especially when new guys come in. He's like, oh, you know, I have the magic touch. If you talk to me, you're I'm the guy. You're usually going to score a goal in the next game. So he makes all these guys think that he has some magic touch. <laughs> sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Although Mikola, Colin had talked to him. And then you guys remember Wednesday in Vancouver, right. we, we thought he might have scored. They gave him credit for that initial goal. And we're looking at Colin and we're like, how did you do it? This guy didn't have a goal in 50 games. <laughs> Artemi, and actually I wrote about this today. Artemi told me in the locker room after that game that he didn't feel anything on his stick. Oh, so really? I, yeah. So I think that the league got that wrong. I think it might have been McCullough's. Poor Nico. Poor Nico. I know. So, no. Colin, I think you still do have the magic touch. Yeah, no, I don't know. But then I, you know, I, talk, I talked to Phil, too. I was sure he was going to score, and then he didn't score. So, you know, it doesn't always work. You know, I did. I, I tried to. I tried a couple times to talk to Sammy Blay, and that never worked. Yeah, but hey. Poor Sammy, but then, yeah, yeah. As, as soon as he gets to St. Louis, that first <laughs> game, he gets one. Yeah, you know what, though? Like, that's a cool thing, too. Like, you know, obviously, we have to write things that are critical of these guys. And we all knew that Sammy wasn't playing well and he was struggling. And even the coach came out and said it. So it wasn't like something we were making up. Right. I, I even felt, you know, I feel bad in this situation. But like we do a midseason report. And one of the categories that we decided we were going to have in there is least valuable player. And it's like, OK, well, you got to pick somebody. And, you know, you feel bad picking him, but that's part of the job. But you do feel good for a guy like that, knowing that it was weighing on him, knowing that I'm sure it was taking an emotional toll to then see him go to St. Louis and get that goal. Like, you know, I'm not rooting for the Rangers to win or lose. Like we all joke about this, but we're rooting for a, a good story and B nothing that happens like late in the game that makes us have to scramble and rewrite our entire story. So we're not rooting one way or the other, but you know, when it comes to like individuals like that, you know, you, you do feel for them in situations like that. And, and you do feel good when they go somewhere else and all of a sudden something good happens for them. I think that yeah. goes back to the whole point of 
what it's like in the locker room now. I think that we get to see these guys as people now. Mm-hmm. And that's also, you know, why it's such so nice to see Sammy go and and have a have a goal in St. Louis and in, in, in his first what was it? His first game back? First game back, yeah. Yeah, first game back. So, you know, you you get to know these guys on a different level. It's not always hockey all the time and I think that's a, a pretty underrated part about what we do is is developing relationships and professional relationships with the players to be able to tell their stories better and to be able to tell their thoughts you know in print a little bit more accurately and uh, better I guess for lack of a better word and I think that's um, probably the best part of the job too is getting to see a guy like Artemi Panarin, you know, who's highest play- paid guy on the team, but he is probably the most down to earth guy out of everybody. I remember Vince when I, I forget where we were, but you were starving. It was like a practice, <laughs> and he was he was hangry. Vince like, means not starving, by and the way. Vince Vince gets Vince gets hungry. Vince eats a lot. It's just just a thing. But yep, this particular yep. practice, he didn't eat before we got there, and he was teetering on hangry. And in the <laughs> locker room, a bunch of the guys just you know started coming in with food and stuff. And and Vince and I were standing around Artemi, and I Artemi's eating in his locker. And I made a joke. I was like, "Oh, watch out, Artemi! Vince is going to grab your food from you." And Artemi looks at him and was like, "Oh." I have extras. Do you want like, seriously? Yeah. And Vince was like, no, nah, dude, like it's totally fine. Like she's kidding. And he was like, no, but I'm not like, do you want, I always order extra. Like, seriously, do you want? And that's just, that's our Temi. And yeah. that's, and that's yeah. something that we probably wouldn't know about him unless we were in the locker room, like how we are. <laughs> yeah. Him, especially like when it was COVID and it was always, whether it was zoom at first or then later it was them at the podium, but there were cameras around and, you know, he was only comfortable when the cameras are are around Mm -hmm. using an interpreter because he's, he's such, what we've learned is he's such a thoughtful guy. And I think he worries that when he's speaking in English, it might not be as articulate as he would like to be. And so that's why he's not comfortable doing English interviews in front of the camera. But when he talks to us, because I think especially the three of us have been able to build relationships with him, He's comfortable talking in English. We talk to him in English all the time. And he knows that, you know, we'll clean up the quotes a little bit. We'll make sure that nothing that sounds silly gets in there. Or, you know, if one word is placed in the wrong spot, we can switch right. it around. Not changing what he's saying, but yeah, just. But we know yeah. what he's saying. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's a that's a huge part of it as well. And, and just talking to guys about their family, you know, just mm-hmm. getting to know guys on a different level. And the other really, really cool thing, which I know all three of us appreciate, is that when it was the zoom or the podium setting, we right. were all talking to the same guys every yeah. single day. Same so it, it was hard to be unique unless you were writing without input from guys writing without quotes. Now we have the flexibility to where if Molly wants to write about Artemi and I want to write about Mikola and Colin wants to write about Hedl, well, we each go and do our own thing. And then I think it's best for the readers because you guys can go and read three different stories about three different topics instead of being force fed all the same stuff. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's been one of the really, really cool parts. I mean, I guess I'll start with Molly. Molly, do you have any? Whether it's a favorite story that you've covered with the team, or even like a favorite locker room moment, or you know, of course, I'm sure we could all share stories from the playoffs and how cool it was to cover that last year. Like, does anything jump out to your mind as far as your time on the beat that you know you think would be a cool story for fans to hear about? Kind of a behind the scenes look. Hmm. That's a good, honestly, because since we've been in the locker room, there's been so many. I mean, I, I mean, the other day uh, 
when I was uh, interviewing a couple players for my feature on Jimmy VC, um, I would I stayed in the locker room. Everybody kind of went to go talk to Turk, and I stayed because I wanted to grab Mika and Chris because they were the last guys off the ice. And just for a little bit of background, I've you know obviously I grew up watching the Rangers, um, and Chris was always he kind of really started becoming a fan favorite really when I started getting into it. And uh, I was sitting there interviewing Mika, you know, asking him what he remembers about a rookie, Jimmy VC. And Chris comes in and I was kind of sitting in Chris's locker a little bit. And Chris comes in and he like half sat on my lap. (laughs) 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 Basically to like shove me out of the way. But there I am sitting in between Mika Zibanejad, Chris Kreider, interviewing them both at the same time. They're the best bromance on the team, you know, whatever you want to say. I've been watching Chris Kreider my entire life, my entire hockey fandom, you know, span. And those were just one of those moments where you're just an absolute pinch me moment. You know, it was so cool. And, you know, to get to connect with those guys on that kind of level and for Chris to feel comfortable enough (laughs) with me to do something like that. I mean, it's so silly. And Chris isn't always silly. Chris is a very intense guy, as a lot of people know. So for him to kind of joke with me a little bit like that, you know, it's just, uh, you know, indicates to me how far I've come in terms of developing relationships with these guys. Um, and that's always, you know, a pretty nice feel good moment. So off the top of my head, that's the that's probably the most recent one where I was yeah, actually yeah. like, all right, that was that was pretty cool. <laughs> Molly, I, I remember you telling me this because I had been on the beat a little while before you came in. I remember you telling me this, that you know, when you first came out and, and, you know, you were so lucky right out of college to, to get, mm-hmm. to get that kind of opportunity and exposure, but obviously it can be intimidating and and you're going in there being feeling like, okay, I have to be professional. I have to oh, go yeah. there and take care of what I have to take care of. And, and you said that there were moments where you would go in and just, you know, start asking players very specific hockey questions. And at some point it dawned on you like, Hey, I, might want to find ways to relate to these guys a little bit more beyond that. And I think that was kind of a cool moment for you to realize, okay, like that's an important part of this as well. Actually, it was, I'll never, I'll know. I know the exact moment when it happened to me, because I was kind of in this mindset that, you know, I I didn't want to waste any of these guys time. Like I didn't want to, I, I just didn't think it was appropriate for me to just be having casual conversations with them, which I don't know why I thought that way, but I guess just that's just how I thought. So I would walk up to a guy, you have a second, I'd rattle off my questions. All right, thanks, bye. And I'd walk away. (laughs) And that was it. But I remember I was actually in the Islanders locker room because that's kind of where I started um, when I started transitioning into hockey full time. And I was talking to Matt Martin and Matt Martin, obviously, uh, his wife, Sydney um, Esiason, Boomer's daughter, started as an NHL reporter before they got married and, and had children and whatnot. So I was talking to Matt Martin, interviewed him a little bit and did my thing. All right, thanks. Bye. And started to walk away. And Matt Martin goes, so how did you get into this? And I was so taken aback <laughs> that a player <laughs> asked me a question about myself that I was almost like, uh, like I forgot, I forgot how I got here almost, you know, like I just was so stunned for a second, but he was the first guy that ever really showed an interest in me as a person and asked me a a question. So I think from that moment on, I was kind of like, okay, maybe some 
of these guys are down to have casual conversations and to develop professional relationships and get more comfortable with me, know why I'm here, you know, how I got into hockey and whatnot. Um, so, but of course, I'm pretty sure like maybe a month after that conversation, COVID happened and then we weren't in the locker room anymore. So I had just started to get the concept of being a beat reporter and being in the locker room and developing relationships. And then it all got taken away from mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. So coming into this season, um, I was ecstatic, you know, to be able to, to start over almost and, and do the full beat reporting job and, and you know, talk to these guys casually, get to know them as people, not as hockey players. Yeah, that's a really cool story. Colin, a- anything anything jump off on the top of your head? No, I mean, I think, like, you started actually a little bit older. I think I was more, I was probably about the same age, maybe a little older than Molly when I started. And the, the cool thing when I started was I started covering the Devils, and all those guys were my age. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're always, and you know, Molly, you have that now, I think, with, with a yep. lot of guys. Um, um, so, you know, when I started covering the Devils, I was 25 years old, and, you know, Ken Danico was 25, and John McClain was 25, and Chris Terreri was 25. These guys were all my age. And so, like, it was kind of really, really cool just being in there and just talking with them. And, you know, in those days, it was a little different, too, because, um, teams didn't fly uh, charter as much. They flew commercial. So if you were traveling, oftentimes uh, you might be on the same morning flight that the team was on. And so <laughs> you kind of knew them in a, in a, you know, sort of a little bit even more familiar than we do now. Um, but uh, but then, of course, obviously, we all get old and and these guys, you know, got older and then they couldn't play anymore. And then they, and then they got, got retired. So you get to see a guy's entire career arc. Um, and now some of these guys are executives, Bill Guerin, um, who I used to, you know, I did a story on when he first started with the devils, he was in the minor leagues and what been out drinking with, you know, cause, <laughs> those days we, we, cause we that was that. a thing. Yeah. That's yeah, not well, so much a thing anymore, but you, you hear a lot of guys like you talk about like back in the yeah, day, that was a pretty common thing. Yeah, no, it wasn't like, you know, I was saying to a guy, hey, you going out to the to the bar later? I'll meet you up. You know, it wasn't like that. It was just like we would go to the same bars that they would go to and you would see them. And, you know, it wasn't awkward at all. I mean, you would just see it. So now, Vince, like the other night I was telling you, we uh, we went over. We happened to go out with uh, our pal, you know, uh, Don LaGreca, and he was staying at the team hotel. We went in there and there was a couple of players there sitting around Um having you know whatever meal they're having burgers or fries or whatever they were doing and i felt really awkward being in the same space uh as as they were in i felt like i was invading their territory when you know all we were just trying to do was have a beer with don um but you know that was it was not that awkward back when i started but again i was kind of the same age as them but again now i'm a lot older and now some of these guys are executives billy garen is is the gm of the wild and Tom Fitzgerald is the GM of, of the Devils. I mean, I covered him when he was on the Islanders and stuff. So you're going to find that, Molly, and 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 you too, Vince. And as you as you go through this, there's going to be guys that you cover. And if you stay in this business long enough, you know, you're going to see them play. You're going to see their careers end. You're going to see them go into management. And you're going to, you know, and then they're going to be sources for you later on. on yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I, I just was having this conversation with Jimmy Vesey the other day. And I was saying to him, hey, you seem like you're really into thinking about the game. And you almost feel like to me, like you might want to coach one day. And he goes, yeah, absolutely. I want to coach one day. And that was the first time it dawned on me, like 
yeah, wow, you know, I could be covering him as a coach down the line. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, right. You remember Travis Green, who just, uh, you know, was the Vancouver coach before they started firing everybody every year? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. He played for the Islanders when I covered the Islanders. And so, I mean, I, I covered him, um, you know, when he was young. I mean, he played on their own, their version of the kid line back in those days with, uh, you know, uh, so I remember him as a player. And, you know, you know, Ray Ferraro was one of the top analysts and, in TV now and like he was on that team. So, I mean, like, you know, you, as you get older, as you age in this business and you stay in it, you know, you, you get to know guys on a different level. Um, and, you know, but that's, it's, it's just interesting, but you know, the, the, the weird thing is watching a guy maybe start to, you know, as he gets toward the end of his career, you know, a guy that you remember being really, really good. Darius Kasparitis is the one that, you know, really kind of stands out to me. Like I remember him coming into the league at 19 and just blowing up everybody and being a really good player and the Rangers signed him to a big contract and stuff. And then at some point, you know, he started playing less and less and then they waved him and sent him to the minors. And that was kind of the end of that, you know, so I mean, you see that too. So that's kind of a, that full career arc, you know, when you, when you, when you get old and you've been around for a while. What's, what your, are- what's your story, Vince? Uh, well, just based on what Colin was just saying, this isn't necessarily like my favorite story that I've covered or anything, but it makes me think a little bit about Henrik Lundqvist because yeah. because COVID was going on at the time and because of how weird things were at the end for him when Igor came up and then they were in the bubble and you know he got the playoff start, but we were kind of feeling like maybe the end was in sight and then the buyout came, but we didn't have any in-person access. It almost felt like it was a little like lacking in in the ceremony and, and the pomp and circumstance that you would expect for a guy like that. Now, obviously, they had the the Jersey retirement, and that was a really well done night. But that season, for me, my first season on the beat was what turned out to be his last season with the Rangers. And that's a guy who I had watched. You know, Molly talks about Kreider. I'm I'm a little bit older than Molly, so for me, Lundqvist was a guy who I felt like I had watched his whole career unfold and you know had some fun nights out with my friends for those playoff runs with him and saw him come up and remembered all that vividly and then to step into the locker room and he's like the veteran guy that was kind of the pinch me moment for him I'll never forget I I got to sit down it was a preseason game and I got to sit down in the locker room like one of the PR guys had told me hey you know I know you haven't really had a chance to meet him I want to do a story there like if you hang around you can sit in the locker room and probably get a one-on-one with him because all the he wasn't playing that night. And so he was just hanging back and getting some work in. And I walk into the locker room and Lundqvist is the only guy in there. And I sat down and had a one-on-one with him. And that was like very much, I think, of all the pinch me moments I've had on the beat, probably the number one thing. But then it just, you know, there was this twinge of sadness. You know, you felt like, okay, the end is near for him. And, you know, you could tell that he was a little down about not getting as much playing time as he was. And, you know, it was a weird, it was a weird thing to cover. And that was really my only season with him. So, yeah. so that kind of stands out in my mind as well. All right, guys, listen. Were you, were you there the night when, when, when he got choked up after Zuccarello got traded? Uh, no, no, that I wasn't. A, that was, that was right before I came on the beat. That before was before you came on the beat. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was difficult. That was, that was a real, real moment. Yeah. Uh, All right, guys, I think we're about to get cut off here, but I really, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Maybe we'll do this again. I feel like we could tell stories for forever, but we've gone, <laughs> we've gone the full. We've gone talk the, anything about the team, like Igor. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll I'll do that on my own later, I guess. But this was <laughs> this was more fun, I think. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thanks for having us. It was fun. I, I enjoyed it.
Cool. All right, guys. I'll see you for dinner. Check restaurant tonight. All right. Very good. <laughs> see I'm you there. later. Maybe we'll see Philip Hedel there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
to go after a guy like that, also knowing that it was virtually impossible to sign him beyond this season. So that kind of ruled Meyer out. I think, given what the Rangers need, Tarasenko, to me, would have been my number two choice over Kane. Now, I know Kane has this chemistry in history with Panarin from their time together in Chicago, but we also know that Panarin has a really tight relationship with Tarasenko. And what this Rangers team needed, above all else, was a finisher. Kane is very much like Panarin in that he's a pass-first player. You look at his career number, he's definitely racked up some goals, but he's always been more of an assist guy. Tarasenko is the opposite. This is a guy with a high-end wrist shot, and he gives the Rangers a goal scorer, which is really, really what they needed. And even though he's had injury issues in the past, the last two seasons have been largely healthy for him. Kane, on the other hand, I know, and I heard this from the Rangers last week, they had concerns about the hip. So you got a guy who you have injury concerns with, his production is down this year, and he's not as much of a goal scorer as Tarasenko. And I think all that adds up to Tarasenko being the guy who you have to favor. And then when you're able to also get the left-handed defenseman that I know the Rangers coveted in Mikola, that deal absolutely moves the needle for me. And I think it makes them a much more legitimate Stanley Cup contender. Now, I still think there's at least one more move coming. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. A couple of the questions I'm going to get to involve that. But this deal, to me, makes the Rangers a much more formidable team going into the playoffs. And then, Puck Talk, you asked about the difference between last year's team and this year's team. This year's team, because of Tarasenko now, and because of Heedle's emergence And I think Kako's having the best season he's ever had. And even Lafreniere has been better recently because the kids are growing the way that they are. And now you add Tarasenko, who, no disrespect to Andrew Kopp or Frank Vetrano, those guys are not as accomplished as goal scorers as Tarasenko is. I think the firepower, the offense potential on this team is better than last year's team. Now, do they need a little more... I don't know if you want to call it defense or forechecking or grit, probably all of those things kind of combined in the bottom six. Yes, I'd like to see them add one more piece there, and I think that they will. The overall depth of last year's four lines might be slightly better than what we see right now with the Rangers. I certainly don't think Jake LeCision is going to be the guy that you want as your fourth line center in the playoffs. Although, listen, The guy has largely struggled. I'm not advocating for him in the lineup, but I did think he had one of his best games, probably his best game as a Ranger in Vancouver on Wednesday. That's kind of a side note. I know he's kind of become an internet punching bag, but he did show a few positive signs of life, I thought, in that game. But ultimately, they're going to want to probably find a way to move him out of the lineup. They're going to add one more piece who can slot in somewhere in their bottom six. But I think once you get that piece then you look at that lineup as being just as deep, if not deeper, than last year's with a little more high-end skill because the kids are all having another year of development. Philip Hedl has become a breakout player for sure for them, and Vladimir Tarasenko gives them an element that last year's lineup didn't have. And I also do think, and I wrote about this at length for a story that went up on Thursday, so I would encourage you guys to check that one out for sure. I do think that 
While Justin Braun was a steadying presence for them last year, he was a right-handed defenseman playing out of position. And Mikola, I think his physical attributes give him a little more upside than what they had in Braun. A lot of the stuff that I wrote about in this story, I made a couple of calls with scouts, obviously talked to people with the Rangers about him, talked to Nico himself. This is a guy who you're not going to get a lot of offense from him. He's not going to be a great passer of the puck. He'll, he'll make decent decisions with the puck, but he's not going to wow you with that kind of stuff. But he moves well for his size, and he's so long. I mean, that was the first thing that jumped out to me when I saw him on the ice for practice after the trade was made. And you go back and you watch, which I've done in the last week, you watch some of his clips from St. Louis. This is a guy who's really aggressive and uses that length and that mobility to close on guys really quickly in the D zone. You'll see an opposing player coming down along the boards, and all of a sudden he's kind of swarming them and smothering them. And because of his long reach and his stick and and those long limbs that he has, it's really hard for guys to get around him once he swallows them up. So I think that that's an element. And listen, he's a physical guy too. I've heard people say, don't be surprised. You're going to see this guy lay some hits that are going to intimidate the other team as well. I'm not trying to oversell him. I think he's best served in a bottom pair role. I think there are some limitations there for sure. But I do think at least on paper and at least based on what I've heard and some of the stuff that I've seen from watching him a little bit in St. Louis, that this is a guy who probably makes their bottom pair once he gets comfortable and adjusted and all that. I know he's taken a few penalties in these first few games. At least two of them I thought were shaky calls from the referees. But once he kind of cleans that stuff up and gets more comfortable and adjusted, I I think potentially this is the best bottom pair the Rangers have had in the last two seasons as well. Not to mention the growth from Keandre Miller, which makes their whole defense look stronger and more dynamic as well. So I think potentially this team could be better than last year's. Does that mean they're going to go on the same kind of run? I don't know. The Eastern Conference is an absolute meat grinder. Colin and I, when we were walking home from the game last night, we're talking about this. The Western Conference, you're looking at that and you're like, who is who's the best team out there? I mean, I still feel Colorado is the biggest threat. Like, I don't think anybody's going to want to see them once they're healthy in a seven-game series. But all the rest of the primary contenders are in the East. Boston, Carolina, Toronto, Tampa Bay. The Rangers, I mean, those five teams are all legitimate Stanley Cup threats. And you also feel like you're going to have trouble if you see a team like New Jersey or Pittsburgh or Washington in the first round. There's really no easy matchup in the East. So things would have to break the Rangers' way for them to get back to the level where they were last season or go further. But I think they're in the conversation with about five or six other teams as one of the most legitimate Stanley Cup contenders in the NHL right now. And I think that the moves that they made last week and maybe one more move to come are really going to solidify this roster in a positive way. All right, let's get to our next set of questions. And again, I'm going to read two here. The first one comes from NY Rangers with a laughing emoji who wrote, Hey, Vincent, Who do you think the missing piece to the puzzle is to complete this hashtag win the cup team? And then Eddie Nathan wrote a lot of chatter from certain Twitter sources that Kane is still a potential target for the Rangers and jury can actually make it work with the third team. 
Can you please put this rumor to rest and explain why it won't slash can't happen? Thanks, Vince. Congrats on 100. So, Eddie, to start with you, yeah, Kane is not coming here, people. I just told you the Rangers are worried about the hip. So that was one of the main reasons they backed off on him. They decided that Tarasenko was the better option, and they got their offense top six right winger that they wanted. So Kane is not coming here. You could, if you want to do some crazy math and you figure out a way to get him here with only 25% of his salary on the book, so basically Chicago would retain 50% and another team would step in as the third team and retain 25%. Mathematically, as long as you send some salary back, you could figure out a way to make that work. But that's not what the Rangers are going to do. I'm telling you right now, the Rangers, I don't think, are going to want to reach very deep into their asset pool from this point forward. They already gave up one first-round pick to get Tarasenko and Mikola. I very much believe they want to hold their other first-round pick. This is a strong draft class coming up, and they need to restock their prospect pool. Not a lot of their top guys have graduated, and I think they're going to want to hold on to one of those first-round picks in this draft. So I don't think that that's in play right now. I don't think they want to surrender any of the top young talents who are on the roster. They want to keep all those guys intact. Those are guys are all a part of what they're trying to accomplish right now. And I don't think they want to part with any top prospects like Brennan Othman. So basically what they're working with for their next move is going to be a mid-level prospect or a mid-round draft pick. The only other piece that they're shopping around right now is Vitaly Kratsov, and it's very much up in the air what they're going to be able to get for him. We're going to talk about that a little bit more with the final question. But those are the pieces they have to work with right now. Kratsov, their B-level prospects, and their mid-round draft picks. So using that and also understanding that they're only on pace to accrue about $1.6 million in cap space. Now, really, if you remove Kratsov or if you waive Jake LeCision, that number ends up being more like 2.4, 2.5 million. So they they can afford to add somebody who's making 2 million a little bit more. But I don't think they're going to be going for any big fish for a lot of the reasons that we just laid out. So no, Patrick Kane is not coming here. Those questions keep popping up in my mentions. I'm going to probably ignore most of them from here on out. It's not happening. The other part of this question, which came from NY Rangers with the laughing emoji, is who do you think the missing piece to the puzzle is? That's an interesting question. And listen, I don't want to just keep repeating the same names. You guys know what I believe the Rangers are looking for. They want somebody who's going to add a spark to the bottom six, probably the fourth line, but maybe they aim a little bit higher. I mean, some of the names that I've mentioned, like if I'm picking my ideal player, a guy like Max Domi, who's on the hook for $3 million, but you know maybe you could find a way to get Chicago to retain half of that, although that probably puts you back up talking about you know giving up a second-round pick or giving up a quality prospect, which I don't really think that they're going to do. You know Maybe the second-round pick could come into play, but that's probably about the height of what they'd be willing to give up for anything. Domi would add some offense to that bottom six. He's, he's one of those... I hate to use this term all the time, but hard players to play against, a gritty player who's had some playoff success. Imagine slotting him in as your fourth-line center with Gaudreau and Gautier down there. That would be a really, really interesting fourth line, I think, for the Rangers. 
you know, Ivan Barbashev is another guy who, you know, I've been really interested in. I think he would have been a nice fit for the Rangers, but those guys are probably going to be a little more costly. And I think it's more likely it's going to be a cheaper option that maybe the Rangers can get away with acquiring for, let's say, a third round pick, a fourth round pick, a, a prospect along the lines of, I don't know, a Matthew Robertson or a Dylan Garand or, you know, one of those guys who's not top, top of their list, but somewhere in the middle. So Tyler Mott, everybody's interested in him. I know the Rangers fans love him and I still do think that he's in play. Nick Bookstead from the Arizona Coyotes is a guy that I really believe the Rangers have some interest in. 6-6 center, can play on the fourth line, moves pretty well for his size, and I think he has like 13 or 14 goals this season, so he's chipping in some offense as well. Those guys are definitely near the top of my list. I think Chicago's Sam Lafferty, although it sounds like there's a lot of interest in him around the league. He's a guy that would bring a lot of speed and forechecking to the bottom six. I'm repeating some of the same names I've repeated, but those are the guys that I would look at. I also think it's very possible that there's under-the-radar guys who Chris Jury is looking at as well. I think they're exploring a lot of different possibilities. It's got to fit their price range. It's got to fit their salary cap situation. But I think a little speed, a little snarl, maybe a little scoring, definitely a little defense, and probably at the top of the list is a guy who's a good four-checker. I think someone along those lines, and you guys can go on your own and probably pick through or comb through the rosters of the players that look like they're not going to make the playoffs right now, the teams that look like they're not going to make the playoffs, who might be sellers, and, and try to identify some of these guys yourself. Again, they have to be in that like $2 million or less kind of salary cap range. But that's what I think the Rangers want to add. And for me, those names that I'd mentioned, those would be my top choices. And I think you add one of those guys onto this roster, and all of a sudden it feels pretty complete. You know, injuries are always a concern, but if they stay healthy and you can add a guy like that, the Rangers, I think, would put themselves in a really good spot. All right, final question. How many more times are we going to talk about this guy? I don't know. But Tony, Ranger fan, wrote, and I love the way he phrased this, which is what kind of what caught my attention. Tony wrote, For any reporter who has the audacity to suggest that the Rangers are in any way responsible for the non-NHL-ready Kratzoff, I'd like an itemized list rather than, quote, both sides are at fault cop-out that pretends to be polite instead of what it is, evidence-free. Well, Tony, two things. I'll start off with, but I'm sure I'm going to go deeper than this. Number one, both sides are at fault. That is a fact. All right. (laughs) I think I've been very clear about that. And stating that is stating the obvious. Number two, if you feel, I don't know how much of my stuff you've read or how often you've listened to this podcast, but if you feel that I have not provided a list of missteps along the way, then I, you just haven't been paying attention. Again, maybe you're not reading what I'm writing. And if, if you're not, that's fair. That's your prerogative. But I certainly have been very clear about what I think the mistakes have been along the way. And I outlined a lot of this again in the mailbag that I wrote this week. And a lot of this came up in my conversations that I was having with various sources when working on that story about the five-year anniversary of the letter. The thing with Kratzoff, from the early stages. The Rangers identified him. They wanted him. They loved the skill. 
they loved that he was working really hard to learn English. They thought that he seemed really motivated to come to America and make things work as soon as possible. And if you guys remember, around the time he was drafted, he was doing really well in the KHL, which a lot of people believe is the second best league in the world. So the feeling was, wow, this guy is not too far off. He was anxious to come here. And one of the initial missteps, and I heard this from multiple people, is that the Rangers invited him over for training camp in 2019, which, listen, you can understand why. The kid was anxious to come here. He was doing pretty well in the KHL. You know, they were entering this rebuild. Fans were excited to see him. There was a lot of reasons why you would want to see him here. But the concerns that are still existing now about him not being strong enough and him adjusting to the North American style and those type of things, they existed back then too. And yet, rather than letting him marinate, letting him continue to develop in the KHL until you were sure that he was ready and you had given him some time to build the proper strength, he was rushed a little bit. And again, this is both sides at fault. The Rangers allowed it, but he was also pushing for it. Then early on, I think some of the missteps that happened at first were more on the player. The fact that he was sent to Hartford when he didn't make the team out of training camp in 2019. And he went there for a little while, but he wasn't happy. You could understand, you know, a guy having some disappointment, but to say, hey, I'm actually going to go back to Russia instead of staying here and working through it, that rubbed a lot of people in the organization the wrong way. And especially that rubbed Chris Drury the wrong way. And now here's where I think some of the missteps from the organization come in, because it's understandable that you would be upset with the player for leaving like that, and especially the way that he did it the second time when he came over and didn't make the team out of camp in 2021 and then flat out refused the assignment to Hartford. That was a bad look, whether it was him getting bad advice, which was probably part of it, or him being immature, which multiple people have also told me they think is part of it. Early on, he made mistakes, but you're talking about a 19, 20-year-old kid In this relationship, who should be the bigger, for lack of a better term, bigger man? Who should be the one taking the high road? Who should be the one that we expect to be the adult in the room? Well, that should be the Rangers. And it sounds to me, and I heard this from multiple people, that there were some emotional, heated moments that occurred, specifically with him and Chris Drury, where they happened in front of other people. And Kratzoff was made to feel very much isolated and unwanted. Now, some people might want to say, hey, toughen up. You know, that's life as a professional athlete. You might get yelled at sometimes and you got to deal with it. But clearly that fractured the relationship and set off this spiral that we've seen since then. So you had the, the guy making bad decisions in Kratzoff. So that's fault on his part. But then you also have the organization not letting him have enough time to develop and bringing him over here before he was ready, scolding him and making him feel unwanted and isolated and creating this friction in the relationship. And what also came up in, in a lot of these conversations is the, the communication. There were times when he came here and felt that he was going to be on the roster, which led to the frustration. And 
I had people tell me that he was given indications that he would make the roster. And then what do you have, especially if you look back at last year, the 2021-22 season, the Rangers elected to keep eight defensemen on the roster, a very unorthodox thing to do, and send him to Hartford. Now, maybe it's because they wanted him to develop, which he obviously needed at the time, but they had to know that the reaction from him was going to be poor given the history of the relationship. And they kind of made this move when everybody felt like, oh man, this is probably not going to be good. And it wasn't good what happened after that. And it was all to keep Libor Hayek on the roster, who they ended up waiving a year and a half later anyway. So that, I think, was a misstep as well. Clearly, he thought he was making the team, especially that training camp last season, and then didn't, and then was very disappointed about it. So somewhere along the lines, there was a communication breakdown. And even as soon as this season, I myself have asked him when he was getting scratched, especially earlier on in the season, have they explained to you why you're getting scratched? Have they explained to you where you need to improve? Have have there been open lines of communication about how you can overcome this and get back in the lineup? And he said, no one's talked to me. So that lack of communication, I think, is an issue. That is something that they should be better at. And I think that they are getting better at it with certain players, but I think that in the case of Kratzoff, and there was a source who said this to me, and I used this quote in the story, all of his allies are gone. I know Jeff Gordon did a lot of homework on him, and Jeff Gordon was a guy who advocated for him getting drafted. Obviously, it was Jeff Gordon's final decision to draft him. Gordon is now gone. That entire pretty much scouting department, whether it's Gordy Clark, who was running the scouting department at the time, a lot of the European scouts, including Nick Bobrov, who was the head European scout at the time. But you, you look up and down. Drury has replaced a lot of those scouts. There's, there's a few that are left, but pretty much it's a new scouting department now with John Lilly running it in these last year, two years. So all of the people that were in his corner, all the people that believed in his talent are gone now. So you've got a situation where I don't know if there are too many people left in the organization who are big fans of his, whether it's Drury, whether it's the new scouting department, whether it's head coach Gerard Gallant. It just feels like his time here has reached a point where they've hit a wall and they're probably not going to give him much of an opportunity. And you can understand a lot of that. He has not shown enough to really earn that opportunity. But it also feels like they kind of look for every excuse to take him out of the lineup as well. And it very much feels like the best thing for both parties is going to be a fresh start. So, you know, I know I just rehashed a lot of stuff right there, but that's why, Tony, we say that there's fault on both sides. I don't think any of these situations are 100% on one side or the other. If you think that this is only Kratzoff's doing, I don't think that's fair. But then again, if you think this is only the organization's doing, I don't think that's fair either. You know, I pointed to some missteps that I think the organization made, but at the end of the day, you know, the player needs to, if he's being told, hey, you think we need you to go to Hartford for a while, the best thing you can do is put your head down, go to work, and prove them wrong. And I don't think that Kratzoff at certain points made the right decisions. Now, I do think in the last year, he has said and done all the right things, but it just feels like the ship has sailed. 
He's definitely been on his best behavior from everything I can gather in the last year or so. He came to training camp early. You guys know a lot of this stuff. He seems to have really tried to put in an honest effort to make it work this time. But a combination of him not playing great in the opportunities that he's had, and I think going back to that allies are gone thing and the organization kind of being ready to move on, I think both of those factors have added up to the situation where we find ourselves in right now. So what happens next? Well, he's going to be traded. I firmly believe, I know we've said this before and it didn't happen, but I think everyone can sense that the end is near. I've heard this from multiple sources. The question is, does it happen now before the trade deadline or do the Rangers wait till the summer? I do not think this is going to linger into next season. I think they will have it resolved before then. But for Drury, it's about figuring out, can you maximize his value, which is very much diminished, now? Or would it maybe be better to hold him and try to flip him around the draft? What are they going to get in return? I've been asking around about this. I think they're hoping for one of two things. A, a second round pick, similar to what they got for Leas Anderson. Or B, a player who they feel like can help them either now or in the near future. I I tweeted about this the other day. I think that they're exploring some possibilities for talented young players in other organizations who might also need a change of scenery. So it's kind of like, hey, we got this young, skilled guy. It hasn't worked here. He needs a fresh start. Maybe you have a young, skilled guy who hasn't worked in your organization And we'll try to see if we can reinvigorate him here. So I think they're exploring things like that. I mentioned just because we were in Vancouver, Nils Hoaglander, but I think there's a variety of guys who probably could fall into that category. No, now that we're in Edmonton, I don't think Jesse Pugliarvi is going to be one of them. I'm not really sure the Rangers have much interest and his salary cap hit is higher than what they're looking to acquire right now. So I don't see him as one. But I think that would be their... Preference if they get a second round pick or a a guy who either comes in and helps the bottom six now or has some potential as an upside play. But if they can't make that happen, you know, they might have to end up settling for like a third round pick is what I've heard thrown around quite a bit. And again, for that, it comes down to can you get that now or do you play the waiting game just a little bit longer and hope that you can get that over the summer. But I don't think they look at this as a situation that they want to let linger into a new season. And as it is right now, he's occupying a roster spot when clearly they're probably not going to use him. So it's it's not a great situation. And just to reemphasize this one more time, there is most certainly fault on both sides. And trust me, there are people who, whether it's around the league or people who were directly involved with this situation at various points who, who feel the same way. So that, that is not just coming from me. I've definitely tried to do some of my homework on that one. So with that, that will do it for episode number 100. We are going to call it quits here. This was a fun episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Really had a good time having Molly and Colin on the show We'll maybe try to do that again somewhere down the line. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you for helping make the show what it is. You guys are the best. I love you. 
you make this job so much fun for me, and I try to make following the team that you love so much fun for you. I'm going to go and get some dinner. We're supposed to be going to this Czech restaurant tonight, so that'll be interesting. And then we got a couple games coming up, so stay tuned. A lot more coverage to come your way. But until then, I will be back next week, and have a great weekend. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.